All right, we are in the book of Romans. We're in lesson five, the moralist day in court, looking at Romans chapter two, verses one to 16. Paul presents God's case against the moralist. Let me read Romans two, one to 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. This is a classic Paul passage in which it's both incredibly complex and ridiculously simple. This is what Peter is referring to when he writes about Paul's writings. When Peter says of Paul's writings, there are many things in there that are hard to understand. Speaking of Paul's books. And yet, Peter says, and those who rest the truth or warp the truth are those who don't get something out of it. It's not impossible to understand. The Holy Spirit has given us understanding of his word. But there's some complexities in here that when you read it quickly or you read it with the wrong presuppositions, you will find in this passage the possibility. Oh, I see. If people are good, they'll go to heaven. And if people are bad, they go to hell. But we have to remember the entire context of this book. And that is, Paul is making a case in chapters 1 to 3 against all of humanity, in which nobody ends up in the court case being innocent. So nothing in this passage, as we go through it, should lead us to think, I see good people are good. (laughs) But Paul is hypothetically saying, If a person obeyed all of the law and had never sinned, eternal life. 
but no such person exists. So remember, God's charge against all humanity here in the middle of page one. Paul will summarize in chapter three again. He will say, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Oh man, secret services aren't a deal. (laughs) All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. So if we understand that that's Paul's summary of chapters 1 and 2 and 3, and namely Gentile moralists who are both Gentiles and Jews who have a standard of conscience, and then the Jews that we will get to and look at next week, Paul's summary statement is there's nobody good. Nobody's going to heaven out of Gentiles and Jews. Nobody is by the works of the law, or by their own righteousness. Okay? So what will be the plea of the moralist? And what is a moralist as we start today? Uh, The plea of the moralist is pretty simple. Gentile. Moralist. Jews. Oh, there's a third classification? No, this is... Paul's category here today, verses 1 to 16, is the intersection between Gentile and Jews. Namely, Gentiles have creation to which we are without excuse for pursuing God because it's so clear in creation that God exists and that he's an eternal being who's personal. And the Jews have the content of Scripture. To which they will be judged, Paul says in this passage. They will be judged according to the law. The Gentile will be judged according to creation and the light that they have and to conscience. Today we're looking at a person who would be, in terms of categories, the person Paul dealt with last week is really the person who's a polytheist, a pantheist, a person who worships the earth. It's either an atheist, as Paul mentions, they have denied the existence of God, or they suppress it and they worship in a pagan way. This is a large part of the world. But then the moralist represents the people who are religious and who are philosophers. It's us. Uh, I don't think any of you, at least I hope, have an idol at your house that you're bowing down to. You're not worshiping the earth. And when you think of people who do, you think, that's pagan. That's in the past. That, or that's tribal. That's bad. Nobody does that. Why? Because we're sophisticated. And so this passage today is talking to people that we know, where we grew up, of people who think we're better than that. But we have our own religions and our own views of how to obey And our matter is we will be dealt with by the conscience. And Paul here, in this passage, is simply saying this. The simple side is, you, moralists, think you're going to get in because you're better than them when you judge those people. Because there will always be people with less light and less obedience. And then Paul is saying, but don't you know that when you judge them by that standard, that that standard you're holding up is true? But you yourself also 
break those commandments. And you are without excuse as well. No person's getting in because they're moral. Right? No person's getting in because they're what? Next week, as we look at the nature of the Jews' problem, you're not better than them, and them, and you're held to a higher standard, so your judgment will be greater. And that's the difficulty. Less light, less judgment. More light, more judgment. More light, more judgment. You know what the highest one is? Christian. Professing Christian. Paul's not dealing with that in this passage. He's dealing with just Gentiles and Jews, of which some are professing other religions. But the highest level possible in this world of light is to be a professing Christian in an evangelical church, to which we will have the greatest judgment at the day of judgment. Pastors of evangelical churches, we will be held to an amazing standard. Because we'll say, I see God in creation. My conscience tells me this is true. Uh, the Old Testament scriptures prove that Christ is who he said he was. I have professed to know him as, as Savior. And now I've become a teacher. And James says, don't be many teachers. Because you will be put under the greater judgment. You see, the greater the light, the more responsible. And that's what Paul's building up to, to a point where... His point is, he's not speaking to pagans and Jews in the book of Romans. He's speaking to Christians about where they had come from and not to just think they're okay. And guys, I'm just going to say it pastorally up front. I won't wait till the end. 38 years I've been a pastor. I've taught a lot of classes. I've preached a lot of sermons. I've met a lot of people in evangelical churches. There is someone in here today who's not a Christian. I'm not a prophet. I can just say, Jesus told the parables. Uh, there's going to be a mixed bag in every church. There's going to be wheat and tares. There's going to be sheep and goats. And that will be true in this generation throughout the church age. Churches are filled with people who are professors of Christ, but not necessarily possessors. Let me just say this is appealing to you in Christ. If you know about Jesus and you've been coming to church for years, but you have never crossed the line, you're not born again. You, you are religious, and but it's not working for you. It's painful. You're like, this is really hard. Like This Christian thing really doesn't work. Maybe it's because you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so I'm appealing you today. Please do not go to hell from my class. Please. I cannot save you. The people in this class cannot save you. Please do not go to hell from this class. It, it, please believe in the gospel and be saved. Okay. All right. Page one. The bottom of the page, though, I need to say. Because it's a court case, I thought of this idea. That when people are commit crimes, they often think they will not get punished. And I gave four reasons here at the bottom of the page that people think they won't get punished of a crime. Sometimes they think, no one will ever consider me. No one's ever going to know. Number two, 
no one will ever catch me. Even if I am found out to be, like, they're on a video and, oh, it's that guy. <laughs> right? You know? Like, you went into 7-Eleven and committed a crime in Florida. That's essentially what everybody does. Right? <laughs> it always ends up in a 7-Eleven in Florida. And there's a video. Okay? And when that happens, that person is now known. But they believe that they can escape justice because they'll leave the boundaries geographically or the time limits will go by. And number three, no one will ever convict me. Even if I end up getting caught, the justice system is so corrupt that I'm probably not going to get punished. And then the fourth thing a person would think is, hey, even if they put me in there, I'll escape because I'm that guy. And obviously, I just put some of the attributes of God here. No one will ever know, but God is omnipresent. And I should have said he's omniscient here. I unfortunately typed in omnipresent twice. Uh, no one's ever going to catch me, but God is omnipresent. Uh, they'll never convict me. It's unjust there. But God is just, holy, and righteous. And then finally, they'll never keep me in prison, but God is omnipotent. Let's go to the next one. All right, today's essential lesson, God's case against the moralist, verses 1 to 16. Number one, the moralist is without excuse because they practice the very sins that they judge in others. All right? Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you have judged, practiced the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Remember the word without excuse, anapologitos, indefensible, inexcusable, without excuse. Again, I just have to say this as a Christian. Whatever you leave this first three, five weeks about, remember this. Do not allow the thoughts that come from the flesh, the devil in the world, to say, but what about that person? But they seemed so nice, or they were just trying. Please believe the apostles <coughs> and believe the word of God. There is no defense before God. There will be no excuse. There's no way out of their condemnation. And without Jesus Christ, that would be true of us. So quickly, I want to remind you, when Paul says, remember, you're without excuse, moralist, he's also pointing us back to last week's lesson, and that is the Gentiles' day in court. Quickly, why were the Gentiles without excuse? Here we go quickly. Number one, the Gentiles without excuse because they suppress the evidence. They suppress the evidence. Number two, the Gentiles without excuse because of the availability of the evidence. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Now this phrase can mean in their midst, they see creation, or within them because he's going to say the law is in their heart. But the availability of this, people cannot say, Man, I don't know. There wasn't that much. I, I, I could hardly see past those mountains. <laughs> Number three, the Gentiles without excuse because of the origin of the evidence, for God made it evident to them. Why are people guilty of not when they don't watch the evidence is because God is speaking to them. God is speaking in creation, Psalm 19. He's speaking. Number four, the Gentiles without excuse because of the timelessness of the evidence. For since the creation of the world. Nobody can say, hey, in my generation, there just wasn't anything to see. Number five, the Gentiles without excuse because of the detail 
of the evidence. From the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely that he's eternal, he's all-powerful, and a divine nature means a personal God. All of that is visible in creation. Now, I want to say this because I want to get in hot water today. You'll often hear Christians say, there is really no reason to share with non-Christians the cosmological argument for the existence of God because they can't understand it and only the Holy Spirit can make people Christians. Cosmological argument is the argument that if there's stuff, there's something here, there must have been a creator. If there's something that's an effect, there must be a cause. It's useless, people will say, to talk to people about that because people are depraved. Right? We believe in total depravity. Does the doctrine of total depravity mean that the argument or the discussion with an unbeliever in which you say, you can see God in creation, is it a waste of time? I don't believe so. And the reason is Paul's using it in Romans 1. Paul is saying that every person you ever meet knows there's a God. There he knows. And his argument is you can see it in creation. And therefore, when we share with people that that is so, we're appealing to that which they can understand. Paul says they can understand that there's a God, but they don't understand the gospel. Paul's pretty clear all over the New Testament. People don't understand the gospel. Let's use that word. What do we mean by understand? People can see that there is a God. They can see that this creative order was made by God, that there must be something eternal, there must be something all-powerful, and they're going to answer to this God. And this conscience also tells them that. What they do with it is a moral thing. It's the moral compass that's broken. It's not necessarily the intellect. The intellect is fallen, but it's still made in the image of God. God is saying, everyone understands this. So don't don't feel like it's a waste of time. When you get in a conversation with an unbeliever, you want to get to the gospel. But if they want to talk about the existence of God, it is not wrong to say from Scripture, you know, you know that there's a God. Uh, no, I don't. Why do people say, no, they don't? Because they suppress the truth. That is different than they don't understand the truth. That is a moral thing. I don't want that to be true. I will not have this man to rule over me. I don't want to admit there's a God. Okay. The point of all that is to say, make sure that when we talk about the doctrine of depravity, which we won't get to till, to till chapter 3, that when we say those things, we're not blurring the line between what God does in salvation and what he does in understanding creation. One other piece. You'll also hear people say, yeah, but they can't really truly understand until God opens their hearts. All right, let's talk about that. Yes. No. <laughs> you do not need a special work of the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 1, to understand that there's a God. Okay? 
what you do need a special work of the Holy Spirit to do is to believe that you need to, to, to move you morally to trust in the gospel. But whether you're becoming a Christian, the Holy Spirit has to move in a way to move you to do that. And the Holy Spirit can give you deeper understanding and say to you, you're in big trouble with that God. You need the Holy Spirit to save you, but you do not have the work of the Holy Spirit in order to understand that there is a God. That is built in in the natural law that God has already done. Okay, enough said. Are there questions about what I just said? Man, too easy. Okay, let's go on. All right, in the middle of page two then, Gentiles without excuse because of the detail. And the Gentiles without excuse because of the clarity of the evidence. It has been clearly seen. Okay. For some of you who are Christians a long time, you're like, yeah. But if you're new to this or new to the book of Romans, pin that down. They all know there's a God. But they say they don't. They all know they're lying. What do you think sinners do? They lie. Number seven, the Gentiles without excuse because of the logic of the evidence being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. It's logical. And number eight, the Gentiles without excuse because of their rejection of God and the evidence. has, And so they are justly put under the wrath of God and the consequences that follow the exchange of truth for a lie. Huge sentence that didn't make sense even when I wrote it. Um, that little diagram to the left in blue that's really hard to read, okay, is just a way of saying that last week's lesson looks like that in a diagram. They exchange, who? All of us, but the Gentiles from the beginning, exchange the glory of God for idols. What happened? Then God gave them over to dishonored bodies. Then they exchanged the truth for a lie. God gave them over to degrading passions. Then they exchanged the natural functions for unnatural. And what did God do? He gave them over to do a depraved mind. And then it says, then they gave hearty approval to those who practice these things. So the moralists stay in court at the bottom of page two, and then we'll come up for air here after a long introduction. Why is the moralist without excuse? Number one, the moralist is without excuse because they don't even follow the standards by which they judge others. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you passes judgments for the things that you judge another. You condemn yourself for you judge, practice the same things. You're a Christian. You know this. You break the Ten Commandments. And so do I. Like, no. Then, then you're probably the person we're talking to. <laughs> that never, no way. Not me. I'm a Christian. Yeah, you broke... Some of the Ten Commandments this past week, for sure. And the Bible says if you break one, you're breaking them all. Yeah, you're guilty of all. Number two, the moralist is without excuse because they know God's standards. See, that's the problem. And we know the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. The moralist is without excuse because they believe that they're above the law. But do you suppose, oh ma'am, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God, the four escapes. And the moralist is without excuse because they think it's, God is too easy on other sinners. And they mistake God's patience with them for God's approval. 
not realizing that they are one of those who needs mercy. Let me bear down there. That's a classic motif. The scripture says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That's the moralist dilemma. They think God's going easy on other people when he's tolerant and patient and kind. Why isn't God judging those people? Why isn't God dealing with that? The moralist judges God. Because he says, or do you think lightly of, you, you undervalue you, you, the riches of God's grace and mercy in the lives of other people? I can't believe God lets people do that. I can't believe God didn't destroy them. I can't believe that. But then secondly, when they look at themselves and God doesn't punish them immediately or life's pretty good, the moralist concludes, God's okay with me. They, don't, they esteem lightly God's goodness because they think it adds up to God's commendation of them. When in fact, it's God being merciful and extending his mercy, right? To the moralist and saying, I'm not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Being kind to them and trying to bring them to repentance. And yet, the moralist sees both ways and is in a dilemma. All right, page three. Our friend, the moralist. And again, I, I want to say, being the moralists are not the people who just live outside the church, right? One of the great problems of the Christian faith is the inundation of moralism and moralist behavior within the church that looks Christian. But moralists are hard to get along with. They're hard to live with. They're like the Pharisees. They're better than thou. All right, page three, top. The sin of the moralist is hypocrisy. Now, listen, it's not wrong to judge or critique the behavior of others, but we'll all be judged by the same standards by which we judge. Okay, second most used verse in the Bible. Judge, right. uh, yeah. judge not, lest you be judged, right? Every unbeliever in the world knows this, right? Every favorite verse. You should get a gathering of unbelievers, right? And just say, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? You know, oh, judge not, lest you be judged. Right, okay. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, from the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Um, but we all know that we have to judge, judge righteous judgment. Uh, you know, the, how, how would you ever do biblical counseling if you weren't judging between right and wrong or determine? We're to judge whether things are right or wrong, but we're not to use it as a standard of our own righteousness. And secondly, just know that every time you judge somebody else, it's an indicator light that you do know what's right or wrong. And when we violate it, we're in the same place. All right, C. Moralists such as the Pharisees and the thief on the cross, one of the thieves on the cross, uh, they know God's standards that all, de- that all deserve death for violating God's law. But they deceive themselves into believing that they are exempt because they serve as judges in God's moral courtroom. I work for the court. It's my job. Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater 
condemnation. This is what Paul's talking about. I erased that other one, but that's the point. The more light, the greater the condemnation. Paul's not making an argument that moralists will get off better because they do better works, but rather they know better, therefore they're more responsible. It's a weird thing of providence. The person who's whose intellect is greater than others' intellects has more responsibility to God. They have more capacity to know. They have more capacity to understand God's word. They have more capacity to do what he wants. Uh, the person who has greater body strength, the person who has a greater sense of what's going on, the person who has even a little more moral resolve, if you will. This person is even greater responsible to God. That's the difficulty of waking up and going, I think I'm, I think I'm smarter than them. <laughs> you know, when you ask the question, why, why did God save you? And he didn't save your brother. Or he didn't save your uncle or your, your co-worker, but you're saved. And you ask, what makes the difference? God or was it you? You say, well, it's God, Right. When you ask the question to a person, though, who made the difference, God or or you? A person could say, a Christian, from an Arminian position, but they're going to say, well, I did, I believed. And then you ask the question, what kind of people believe the gospel? Wise people or unwise? Well, it's wise. It's wise to believe the gospel and go to heaven. Were you wise? What does the Bible say? Are there any wise there are any, you know, this is down that framework. There's nothing that we contributed to any of this. All right, and then Luke 23, on that same point, regarding the thief on the cross. But the other answered, and rebuking him said, the one thief to the other, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? That second thief on the cross, or first as you count it, the bad thief, they're both bad. <laughs> The moralist thief says, hey, what's up with that? He's just like me. All right. Number two, the moralist will not escape God's judgment and is further condemned because of their contempt for God's kindness to the Gentiles and themselves. But do you suppose, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The moralist hypocrisy is the fruit of the root of pride and a twisted theology of justice. Mm -hmm. Hypocrisy, I say in my little block there, is erecting a false life on the outside while living another way on the inside. It is to pretend to be other than we are. For the professing Christian, it is pretending to have the fruit without actually having the root. It's doing religion without a relationship, and it's the duplicity of having a noticeably different public and private practice of your proclaimed faith. It's easy to fall into this as a Christian, so much even more as an unbeliever who's trying to gain their salvation. The moralist hypocrisy is manifested in pride and judgmentalism. 
Often the sins of pride and judgmentalism accompany the sin of hypocrisy, as they're really two sides of the same coin. Pride is the undue commendation of oneself, while judgmentalism is the undue condemnation of others. Pride admits no personal wrong, while judgmentalism attaches a final verdict to the faults of others. Just to say that again, pride is the undue commendation of yourself, while judgmentalism is the undue condemnation of others. And finally, the moralist hypocrisy is hidden behind the veil of a theology of work salvation. Uh, You've got to be into work salvation if you're a moralist, right? Um, I'm going to say this in my notes in a minute, but I'll just make the point here. Moralists have a number scale on which they judge everyone. Right? So a moralist will put a hundred scale up for eternal life, and they always know where they stand on the moralism scale. A hundred, you get into heaven, right? Zero, you don't. There might be a curve, they're not always sure. Moralists have curves. Maybe you get in at 83. It's kind of hard to say, but they're shooting for the 100, okay? They're shooting for 100. And then they know where everybody who's ever lived is on that scale. Let's see. Mother Teresa. Hitler. Right, you know where this is going. How many of you grew up Roman Catholic? Okay, you understand the scale. Okay. I grew up Roman Catholic, so okay. So, Mother Teresa is up here, and we're going to give her an 83. Okay? She's big time in this. Okay? And then who mentioned Hitler? Hitler. I did. All right. Hitler's a negative South. <laughs> <laughs> okay? So every Catholic, at least in my generation, would have known something like this. If you ask, are you going to heaven? They would always say, I hope so. You're like, well, what do you think, really? And they're like, well, I haven't ever done anything like Hitler. <laughs> you know, I never killed anybody or whatever. So, you know, I got a pretty good shot. You know, and that's a whole Catholic talk. The point is, people know where the line is. And for a moralist, wherever they put themselves, they might say, man, I'm a 79. Or I'm a 93. But for sure, they're almost always higher than you are. Whatever <laughs> 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 your number, all right? The moralist are Two things that are wrong with this standard, and this is the point in this passage, they have the wrong idea of God's judgment standards. The two things that are wrong with this standard are, number one, what they're looking at other people, having done or not done, they themselves are already guilty, and they're misnumbering their place on the chart. They, they, they moralists always miscalculate because they think that they must be better than others and they, they have the different framework. The second and most difficult, or the worst problem is this. Their scale is just flat out wrong. God isn't on a 1 to 100 scale. Everyone they know, everyone who's ever lived, they can probably put on a 1 to 100 scale of righteousness. But God's standard is a cabillion zillion. It's so infinitely out of the roof that this is a human standard by which we can probably say that person's better than another person. Right? Because this passage is going to go on to say, hey, when the Gentiles do things that are right, even though they don't have the law, it's good. But it's on a relatively good scale of, it's a sinner scale. 
That's the best sinners can do. But the, it's the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ by which everyone will be judged. And no one, even the best person in the room, will, <laughs> right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, the quick illustration, just on a presenting the gospel stage, uh, three swimmers going to England. Uh, what if I and Steve Kirshner and Elsie Best, we go down, right, we go to Rehoboth, and we're going to be in a contest. Who can swim to England? <laughs> and so I'm going to Steve, Steve, Steve comes up just outside the cliffs of Dover. He's like, wow, that was, that was awesome. Elsie's so, the best. That's right. So we get out in the water, and we're going out, and, you know, one of us is going to be better than the other one, and I'm a terrible swimmer. So about, about 100 yards out, I'm dead. <laughs> and you're unaided by a boat. You can't bring floaties. There's no motors, right? This is all just you. You're, you're on your own works. But then Steve, he's like the guy who swims the English Channel. He goes out 30-plus miles, right? People are, Steve, 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 Steve. And the cameras are watching it, and they got little drones and everything. And then they're like, where's Steve? <laughs> and then Elsie, of course, is the best swimmer. And Elsie's out 150 miles. She breaks every record of all of mankind. No one will ever swim out that far. And then Elsie dies. And she's still 3,000 miles from England. That's God's standard. All have fallen short of the glory of God in the gospel. All right. All right, page three, back. The moralists will not escape God's judgment and is further condemned because of their contempt for God's kindness, as I read before. A, the hypocrisy is the fruit of root of pride. The moralist hypocrisy is manifested in pride and judgmentalism. And then finally, as I was saying, and I have not read the bottom, the moralist hypocrisy is hidden behind the veil of a theology of works righteousness. Proud, judgmental people are usually legalistic and or moralistic. They turn their religion into a means of justifying their own sins and faults to the intervention, invention of a virtual moral accounting ledger. By means of this ledger, they are able to ascertain everyone's spiritual score. You know, I write and draw on the same subjects. I just saw, saw that. As you would expect, their score is usually considerably higher than everyone else's. If the ledger were a set of scales, then the proud and judgmental person would see their sins as lighter than others on one set of scales, and on the second, their righteousness as weightier than others. Yes, sir. Sometimes people don't realize that they are moralists. And I have an example um, yeah. without mentioning any names. So a lady is talking about um, her relationship with her husband mm -hmm. and why she wants to keep a tight rein on him. Because she's saying other women are no good. They are always after somebody else's man. Right. This way. But then I go to her because she says uh, women, she said, women are no good. I said, but you 
all woman. <laughs> and I always get that deer in the headlight look. Right. Mr. Brown, I think you've nailed it. <laughs> no, you have. You nailed it. The, the, the hypocrite is self-deceived. Right? Because they, they truly believe that their standard of judgment is correct, and they truly believe they are righteous within the standard. And therefore, the logic of it will fail them, because to give up their standard, or to give up their place in the standard, is to collapse their entire system. And so, if righteousness is not based on the system they believe in, they're lost, I mean, metaphorically speaking, from their system. To, the only way out of that is to come to a higher standard and recognize that you're lower, so that when you look at other people, right? And so you're nailing it, the very problem. The Gentile suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. So does the moralist. But they have a higher scale of suppression. But yeah, unless God opens their eyes to their own unrighteousness and that they are so far below the righteousness of God that the only hope is in Jesus Christ. You're right. I mean, now in just an argument, the conversation, you're hitting the, you're hitting the point well, you know, I mean, what else can you say? You're a woman. And also, you know, all women are bad. They're trying to steal other people's men. But the root problem behind that is pride or sensuality or whatever. And this person is proud, you know, as, as well. So. All right. Let me go on. I think I'm on page four. Page four. Good. The moralist has not only, yeah, there's no number at the bottom of page four. Uh, that's right. The moralist has not only judged the Gentiles with a hypocritical standard, but was wrongly judged God's standard, which is what this, this drawing shows. Who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. God is not partial to people, whether it's your ethnicity or your socioeconomic or whatever. God does not show partiality. That's the point of Paul. Everyone is in the same boat, okay? Everyone. So God's standard of judgments are the truth and works. A person is judged by works, but only saved by faith. The believer's works are judged at the Bema seat of Christ, and the unbeliever's works are judged at the great white throne. We can't lose sight of the context of Romans, namely that no one is saved by works. So again, this passage is telling us God's standard is without partiality. If you're a Gentile and a pagan, or if you're a Jew, or if you're the moralist in between, you'll all be judged by your works and the truth. What is the truth? The truth that can be seen in creation. The truth that your conscience tells you. Namely the Ten Commandments, or at least nine of them. And you'll be judged by your works. Well, what do you mean? Judged to go to heaven? No, no, no. No. Judged for the condemnation that you will receive. Nobody's going to heaven at the end. The sheep and the goat judgment at the end that Jesus talks about is not like, hey, some of you, what, you want to cross over? You know? No, it's already determined, but the lifestyle of your works will evidence who you really are. Let's take a look at a few of these passages. As far as the Bema seat, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul wrote that to Christians, right? We all know he's not talking about getting there to get to heaven. You're already there. 
but you're being judged according to for rewards, right? Your works for rewards. Romans 14, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And we can lose that as Christians. You know what I mean? I'm saved, I'm good, Jesus and I. When I get there, it's just going to be a giant party. Yeah, yeah, Luke 16, angels will carry you in. But then we will all stand before Jesus Christ individually and answer for the life that we have lived as Christians. What did you do with what I gave you? Did you bury it? Did you invest it? What did you do? Individual personal meetings with the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account. It should be sobering to us. I personally do not want to stand there on that day as a pastor and say, you know what? It was just too hard to give an account for other people, so I didn't. Well, why did I put you there? Uh, and, and those things. We all personally will give an account. So as I live, says the Pastor, Lord. Yes, ma'am. Um, I, I was just thinking, maybe that's where the tears come from, that mm-hmm. he will wipe away from our eyes. Possibly. Possibly. And every tongue shall give praise to God, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And in 1 Corinthians 3, if any man's works which he built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's works is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. MacArthur, he says a lot of cool things. (laughs) Uh, he says the subjective criterion for salvation is faith alone with nothing added but the objective reality that salvation is manifested in the subsequent godly works that the Holy Spirit leads and empowers believers to perform for that reason good deeds are a perfectly valid basis for God's judgment it must be made clear of course that although scripture both Old and New Testament teaches that judgment is by works it nowhere teaches that salvation is by works the life that is saved by faith is to give evidence of the salvation by doing God's works. Outward godly works are the evidence of inner faith. So Paul main, Paul's main point in these verses is that God judges righteously and partially and according to an objective standard. Both Jews and Gentiles will be judged, not for salvation, but for condemnation, according to the light they've received. All are without excuse, thus all are condemned outside of Christ but will all receive condemnation in relationship to their deeds and the lights they have. Stop there. Dante's Inferno. You guys have ever read that? Yeah, right. The levels of hell. They have people at different places. And that is consistent with the idea of Scripture and the revelation that people have received from creation, conscience, Scripture, and then Christ himself. Next page, page 5. Jesus even says this regarding his mission and then the response that he got. And he says in Matthew 10, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. The city which had rejected him. Why? Because they had Jesus in person. The greatest revelation of God. He's incarnate. The greater the revelation, the greater greater the judgment. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah had so much less light to run by. Were they doing evil? Yes. Will they be judged? Absolutely. Jesus didn't say they're not going to be judged. He says it's going to be greater judgment for the person with more. 
light. So no one has or ever will earn salvation through good deeds. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Then Romans 3.20, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then Ephesians 2.8 and 9, of course, For by grace have you been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not a re- as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So the moralist will, like all men, be judged impartially by God. Thank God for the gospel. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be (laughs) scot-free. Will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be just, justified. For when Gentiles who do, uh, do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. And in that they show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately excusing or else defending them. And on the day when, according to my gospel, Paul says, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So what about that? God's judgment of those without the law does not lead to salvation, but to condemnation. Notice very carefully the words in there. Notice it says, they will perish and be judged. In verse 12, they will perish without the law, and they will be judged by the law. Jews and Gentiles alike, there is no escape. Nobody's getting in by good works. Paul is consistent in saying this. You will perish outside of the law. You will be judged by the law. And then B, having more light, revelation from God, does not make you more righteous, but rather more clearly exposes our unrighteousness, because not the hearers, but the doers. All right, notice my little circle there, kind of alluded to that, but I want to go back to this and talk about the people you meet. I'm going to go back here. Woo! You're going to meet the Gentiles. The moralist, the Jew, and then the professing Christian. And so, again, what what do they have? They have creation, they have conscience, they have content of scripture, and then they have the revelation of Jesus Christ. As you meet different people, they're going to have different views of God along the way. And so I've put, I think, six or seven uh, views here. And typically, I think I'll just work off my list, uh, you'll meet atheists along the way till you reach a certain point of moralism. The moralist is made up of at least three camps. You'll meet Gentile pagan moralists who just have a philosophy code of ethics built on their conscience. You'll, you'll have, I'm sorry, you'll have atheistic moralists, you'll have religious moralists, a philosophy moralist, sorry, I'm doing this to myself, and you'll have religious moralists, right? You'll have that commentator on TV who doesn't have a religion, but they're not an atheist, and they're just, they're saying moral things. You'll have people who are atheists, but they want to be, they want to be ethicists, they want to be ethics people. And then you have people who are religious, but they're not Christians, 
but they're people of religion. Up in this line here is like every world religion, Islam, etc., etc. Now, you might, some of these, Buddhism, whatever, you kind of draw the line back because some of these are more pantheistic, more whatever, and others are less. Islam is the only other world religion besides Judaism and Christianity that is monotheistic, believes in the existence of one God. You're up, a, you're up a scale or down a scale as you go, and you can kind of dot where people are at. Here you have pantheists and panentheists, and then polytheism kind of goes between here and here, and as you go along, then you meet the Jew. And then within Judaism, though, there are at least two to three camps, right? There, there is pagan Jews. <laughs> so you're going back in our day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just because you're Jewish by nature, I mean by ethnicity, does not make you religiously Jewish. And then you have people who are philosophically Jewish, and then people who are more religiously Jewish. And then we all know within that, uh, we have different strands of Judaism today. Uh, you have that which is even more liberal, and then you have up to those who practice supposedly an orthodox view. And so then, within the Christians, you meet the worst kind are Raiders fans. Okay. Some people profess Christ, but no. But within professing Christians, you have liberals, right, and moderates, and you know conservatives, and then fundamentalists. And you have here supposed evangelicals, but that doesn't mean anything anymore. You have liberals, and then you have the halfway house. And that's why it's so confusing as you go along. But people are justifying themselves up to a certain point. In all of these, modern Judaism is a work salvation. And so all the way you kind of get up to, until you get to evangelical Christian, you're really in work salvation wherever you are. And evangelicals are not all Christians, right? It's a, it's a dotted landscape. And fundamentalism, those are the people who, theoretically, we hold the truth. Hope Bible Church is fundamental in its doctrine and evangelical in its spirit, the sort of the, 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 the line we have. But when you get here, that's the most intoxicating part, because you're a Calvinist, a cessationist, and you're, you're not one of those other bad people. You're not an egalitarian. You're a complementarian. You believe in seven-day creation, right? These are the good people. <laughs> and so it's hard not to, even in our own world, to think of ourselves as better. We're in a cult, brother. Let's admit it. There are only eight other people who believe this outside this church, but we love them. <laughs> Thank God for Dr. MacArthur and the other seven guys. <sighs> Page six. In conclusion. Everyone has the moral law written in their hearts. The conscience is God's umpire within that constantly reminds us where we stand in regards to God's righteous standards. Uh, I think I mentioned the last couple of weeks Living Waters Ministry. How many of you know of their ministry? Right, you, you, a lot of you will be. 
uh, Ray Comfort is the guy who founded that. Okay, Ray Comfort's ministry. Yeah. Um, and then some of you know even more intricate, Mark Spence, Easy's Wayne. It's, you know, th these guys are all within the Living Waters ministry. And their approach to the gospel presentation, as you know, is to begin with the law, right? Uh, that's very Lutheran in its backdrop because law and grace or law and gospel. But the point is to start with the law. Uh, because, and then they ask those questions like, do you think you're a good person? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you a few questions, you know, and then they go through. Have you ever lied? Now they're caught because they're going to lie if they say no, right? <laughs> right, you know. And so then they say, yes, yes, I've lied. Well, what do you call somebody who's lied? A liar. Then Ray will go on with the presentation. Have you ever committed adultery? Oh, no, never. Have you ever lusted in your heart for that other person? Yes. What do you call somebody who's committed adultery in their heart, an adulterer, you know, whatever? He goes on and goes through. And it, have you ever stolen anything? Like, you know, people are like, oh, no, because they're thinking about a Cadillac or a Porsche. <laughs> but then every person realizes, yeah, in third grade I stole that, and then I stole this. And, and then, oh, yeah, that time, and then I stole it from the IRS because I didn't mention it. And then whatever. You took a pen from Hope Bible Church. <laughs> you know, you get to heaven, and in your jacket. <laughs> That's good. Hey, that was a gift. <laughs> so, uh, very good. The, the guys from Living Waters, then, they start on this basis. Why? Why do they start with the Ten Commandments? Because of two things. Uh, we all know the Ten Commandments are a great moral summary of God's holy standards. But because Romans chapter 2 tells us that everyone knows these commandments. You go, how do we know it's those commandments? We'll go on to talk about them. But remember, in chapter 1, Paul presented the Gentiles' failure in the Ten Commandments. And so he's saying the moralist is judging them because they don't do the Ten Commandments. And then Paul is saying to the moralist, you yourself know those are true, yeah, and you don't do them either, right. So the Living Waters approach, and, and many people's approach, start with the law and ask those questions because it gets to the inner person. And the witness of the inner person is already telling them that it's true. Start where they are. So it's okay to start with a creation argument. I mean, get to the gospel. But to say, don't you see, there's got to be a God. And you go through those, and people are like, no, oh, they're small. I don't believe that. Okay. Are you a good person? At the end, no, you're not a good person. Now, a person can say, I reject those standards. That's just your religious standard, whatever. But you're going to start because God has already told you there's two inner witnesses. There's two Trojan horses within that they're susceptible to in the presentation of the gospel. All right. This is a very long reading. Not, this is a very complex reading by Packer or writing by Packer on the Puritan conscience. I'm only going to read a few of the sentences here. All Puritan theologians from Perkins are agreed in conceiving of conscience as a rational faculty, a power of moral self-knowledge and judgment, dealing with questions of right and wrong, duty and desert, and dealing with them authoritatively as God's voice. Now, I would suggest if you really want to learn more about conscience, uh, there's a great book by Packer on the Puritans. 
in which he t deals with a rather lengthy discussion on what is the conscience. I wish I could do that justice here, but simply to say, it's a moral faculty and it's intellectual. It's not simply feelings. It's not just the heart is like, you know, I don't feel good about that. That's the result of the intellectual part of the conscience. The conscience is not a direct revelation from God. It is not God is speaking through the conscience in that moment to the sinner, giving new revelation to them personally. But it's the inborn nature, a mystery, in which God is placed within the human capacity, the human soul, this inner witness that keeps going, oh man. <laughs> and to get rid of conscience is to get to the point where you become one of the people that we see on TV. That is, when people suppress their consciences, they put their conscience down over a long period of time, God will give them over. And then they become murderers. And, you know, they have no conscience. But they do. It is suppressed somewhere. But the suppression of conscience will eventually lead you to deeds which are outrageous. So people are at different bandwidths of that. Just think. Some people have a high conscience and they follow it to some degree, but everyone violates their own conscience. And then there are some people who appear not to have a conscience. Raiders fans, you know. People. <laughs> are there any Raiders fans in here? <laughs> See, no Raider fan would actually say they're a Raider fan. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, page six, D. No thought, word, or deed will escape the righteous judgment of God. This is what Paul preached to all men so that they would flee to Christ in the good news of the gospel. Because Paul says, On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Three things there. Paul is not saying that you'll be judged according to his gospel. Paul is saying, in relationship to the gospel I preach, which I say these following things, that is, according to my gospel, Jesus is going to be the one who judges you. Read that again on that note. On the day when, according to my gospel, according to how I always say it everywhere I go, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Paul says, every time I preach the gospel, I make everyone know, you will stand before God, and your secrets will come forth. And so here are some key terms at the bottom. I encourage you just to review on those because um, next week we will talk about the problem of the Jewish day in court, and that is under the law and the judgments thereof. Guys, let's pray. We'll let you out.